Up next is Safe Space. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversations and daring stories about the very subjects we are most afraid to discuss. Before we get into tonight's show, I want to let you know that Safe Space is moving. We are not going to be airing on Wednesdays at 7.30 after tonight. We are going to be airing on Mondays at 1 o'clock. So please make a note of that. Mondays from 1 to 1.30, you'll be able to hear Safe Space. And if you miss that time, you can always catch every show at our website, www.safespaceradio.com. Tonight is the second show in the series on the Somali community in Maine. Last week, I spoke with Mohammed Dini on Talking About Difference. Next week, I'll be speaking to Hussein Ahmed about being a Somali businessman in Lewiston. Tonight, I'm talking to Maria Padian about her new book, Out of Nowhere, a young adult novel about Somali and traditional Maine high school students as they begin to develop friendships with each other on and off of the soccer field. Writer Maria Padian lives with her family in Brunswick, Maine, and is the author of several young adult novels. Her previous titles are Brett McCarthy, A Work in Progress, and Jersey Tomatoes Are the Best. Maria has also worked as a news reporter, an essayist for public radio, a congressional aide and press secretary, and a freelance writer. Maria's new novel, Out of Nowhere, is being launched nationally today. Welcome to Safe Space, and congratulations, Maria. I'd like to start out by asking you, what inspired you to write this book? Well, I am the granddaughter of immigrants. All four of my grandparents were immigrants. Two of them, English was not their first language. As a matter of fact, my mother's first language was not English. And so the immigrant story was very much the story of my family growing up. I think that in addition to that, living here in Brunswick for the past 20-so years, I was privileged to see what was going on in communities like Portland and also in Lewiston and seeing all of these newcomers arriving in Maine. And to me, it was just the American story playing out in its latest iteration, and I was curious. I was wondering, how are these new folks faring in a state which is predominantly white? And these folks are from Africa. They're from faiths that are very different from the predominant uh, Christian faith, particularly when you go up to a place like Lewiston, and many of the people are Franco-Catholic. So I was intrigued by that and brought my own sensitivities about being descended from immigrants to that story. And did you have any personal interaction? I know you're the mom of two kids that are now grown, but were they telling you that they were having experiences in school like the ones that you wrote about? Not my kids. We were. We live in Brunswick, and we don't have um, an immigrant population or, or significant immigrant population here in Brunswick. But my kids do play a lot of sports. And what I did notice when I would go to their soccer games, basketball games, etc., I would see more and more of these um, Somali kids participating on the teams. And I just became curious about who they were, what their lives were like, and how they were fitting in. 
So let's talk a little bit about the story itself. This is a story, the protagonist is a, a high school student named Tom Bouchard, and it's really, a, the heart of the book is about his growing friendship with Saeed, an extraordinary soccer player on his team, and Saeed's sister, Samira, and how their friendships kind of evolve. How did you choose soccer? I mean, it sounds like your kid's soccer may have been the reason, but how did you choose soccer as the thing that brought them all together and sort of from which their relationships began to develop? Partly I chose soccer because it actually was going on in Lewiston particularly. There were um, young boys who were joining the soccer team, and they were very good. And they were really transforming the way the team was playing. In the past, I'm quoting um, a coach that I had interviewed. He would say to me, you know, we used to be kind of known as a thug soccer team. We played kind of rough. And he said when these new boys came on our team, our game evolved and it became more of a finesse game. And so he was seeing some changes that he really liked seeing on his team. What I also noticed about the kids was that, you know, kids are kids. They all want the same thing. They want to fit in. They want to make friends. They want to score the goal. And what was going on in Lewiston at the the time that I was um, beginning my research was, you know, there was a lot of controversy about what had been going on with the mayor's letter, with the, the hog's head that had been thrown into the mosque. And when I began to meet young people and talk to the kids, I realized that they were working hard to transcend all of that. When you spoke to adults, very often they had some sort of an agenda, whether they were angry about the situation or whether they were political advocates or whether they were advocates for the the community. But the kids always sort of came at it from the same place. They just wanted to make friends and fit in. And I found that so refreshing and also so hopeful. I was privileged to meet a couple of boys who played soccer together in Lewiston. One was a Somali boy who had come to this country after spending time in a refugee camp in Kenya. And the other was a white Catholic boy born and raised in Lewiston. And they had become very close friends. And they trusted me. And they met with me, and they just regaled me with their stories and gave me a wonderful insight into how they interacted with each other and what was working, what wasn't working at school and beyond in the community, and what was possible. And they were, just as an example of one funny interaction I had with them, which was so illuminating, uh, they were just talking about food. And the Somali boy was talking about how they don't eat pork. And they're all over the cafeteria. There would be different signs that would be in Somali saying what was in the food in the cafeteria so the kids would be sure not to eat the pork. And uh, the white boy just sort of looked at him and shrugged and goes, yeah, they don't eat bacon. They eat goat. I mean, goat's their bacon. Whatever. (laughs) And to me, that just spoke volumes about their relationship, that he was like very live and let live, very accepting about it. And um, I was inspired by that. I was inspired by those sort of interactions that I had with young people. 
How, how did you find them? I mean, what an extraordinary privilege for you to meet up with these two boys. Did a teacher set you up with them? Or? It took a little while. I started off with adults, and one person led to another, led to another, and it took some time. And finally, the same couple of names kept coming up, a, a guidance counselor and also a librarian and also a, a gal who was an advocate who was working with Somalis in Lewiston. They all kept bringing up the same couple of names and saying, you've got to talk to these kids. And that was eventually how I found them. But it took a little digging, particularly because I needed to find kids who, A, not only trusted me, I'm just this you know, strange white woman coming into their world and asking nosy questions, um, but also kids who had the uh, language skills to be able to fully express themselves to me. A lot of times we had a language barrier, some of the kids that I met, and I could just see they wanted to tell me things, but it was very hard for them. So I I was very fortunate to encounter a, a handful of kids who really had a firm grasp of the language and also were forthcoming with their stories. One of the themes in the book is the way that the white Franco-Catholic kids struggle with some of the rules that the Somali kids live by and the pork one is only one example. Other ones are about not touching dogs or not having a girl touch the skin of a man outside her family. And there's a kind of seriousness about these rules that's hard for for some of the traditional white Mainers to understand. And I wondered if you might read me a passage that kind of captures that. Sure. The passage I'll read is from a section in the book where the new Somali boys on the team are coming to their first ever pasta party. And there are four boys, four Somali boys on the team who have come. And uh, their names are Muhammad Muhammad, Saeed, Ibrahim, and Ishmael. Muhammad Muhammad is, the other boys all call him double M because they said that was a little bit easier for them. So that's double M is his nickname. And all the boys are downstairs. They're done eating and they're in the basement playing Halo and foosball and ping pong. And that's where this particular story begins. The narrator is Tom, and he is the captain of the team, and he's the one who is speaking in this scene. Mike's golden retriever, Sandy, ran into the room. She was beyond delighted to find so many boys in her house, and that big tail of hers swung madly back and forth. Hair flew off her with every swing. Sandy is a real shedder. Every Somali guy took cover. They ran, not like they were scared, but more like they were grossed out, as if Sandy were coated in vomit or had some seriously contagious disease. To make things worse, she thought the guys who were running were trying to play with her, so she followed them. Within seconds, they were dodging, and Sandy was chasing. Not good in a crowded space. Hey, who let the dog in here? I heard Mike yell. Hold her. I happened to be nearest, so I grabbed her collar. She had this lolling dog smile on her face, complete with big, drippy tongue. Mike took her from me and pulled led her from the basement and up the stairs. Double M, Saeed, Ibrahim, and Ishmael stood well away, watching warily as Mike hauled her off. Sorry, Mike said as he passed them. I thought we left her in my sister's room. I'll put her outside. Pete Laborde and a few of the other guys were giving each other confused looks, but they didn't say anything. When the dog was gone, I went over to Saeed and the other guys. You guys okay? I asked. Ibrahim nodded. You know, Sandy's a good dog. She's not vicious or anything. 
Double M shook his head in disagreement. Dog's not good, he told me. No, Saeed said in agreement. We don't touch dogs, Ishmael added. You don't touch dogs, I repeated. I wasn't sure I'd heard them right, but they didn't correct me. Why don't you touch dogs? Ibrahim answered, You can touch a dry dog, but you can never touch a wet dog, or let a dog wet you. If you do touch a dog, you have to wash seven times, or give money to seven orphans, or feed a poor person seven days. Altogether, you know, feed them seven days together? Wait, if Sandy over there had come up and licked one of you guys, you'd have had to find an orphan and give him money for seven days? Mm, Probably wash seven times would be easier, Abraham said. Why? What's up with dogs? I asked him. This was blowing my mind. Abraham shrugged. It's in the Quran. He headed back to the ping-pong table and retrieved his paddle. Double M followed. And that's all I'm going to read of that passage. <laughs> so clearly one of the things that's hard for Tom is to understand this. You know, gold retrievers, of course, we think of as the friendliest, most irresistible dogs. Right. <laughs> and so what, what's clear is these kids take this rule very seriously. Tom earlier in the book describes himself as a cafeteria-style Catholic. And I wondered if that was one of the cultural differences you were trying to explore, is the kind of the difference in the way that people approach religion. Oh, the differences and the similarities. I think that all of these folks in the book, I mean, one of the things we see with Tom in the book is um, on page one, Tom is sort of arguing with God, isn't he? <laughs> He's a person who doesn't necessarily consider himself seriously religious, but we realize that religion is a huge part of his culture, and he is a person of faith, and he's wrestling, he has a lot of questions, and then his world collides with another boy for whom religion is a central part of his faith, particularly because he lost everything else. It was one of the interesting things that I learned as I was researching my book, that Many of the Somali people who now live in Lewiston, when they were in Africa before they had needed to leave, many of the women had not necessarily always covered up when they were out and about in public. There was a book, I think the Maine Humanities Council has a copy, I can't remember the title offhand. There were all sorts of photographs of Somali people in Kenya and in Somalia, and many of the women in the book were covered. And some were not. And a few of those very women who were not covered when they were living in Africa, when they came to the United States, they began covering and dressing much more conservatively when they came to the United States. And someone asked them about it, and they didn't necessarily have a particular answer as to why they had changed, except that they had lost so much in their lives that their faith and their culture and their religion was what they were able to bring back with them. So they were going to practice it even more emphatically. I think that that is something that the character of Tom Bouchard encounters, that he has sort of practiced his faith because it's what you do. Go to church on Sunday. You might give up a piece of chocolate during Lent, but for Saeed and some of these other boys, it's something else. It's something that goes fundamentally to the heart of who they are and also 
what they've lost. It makes it especially more poignant, you know, that the current Lewiston mayor, Bob McDonald, has recently been quoted as asking the Somali community to, quote, unquote, leave your culture at the door. Yeah. And hearing you now, I hear it in a whole other way, Maria, how poignant, what a profound thing he's even suggesting, how precious that culture becomes when you've lost everything else. Sure. And, you know, even for my grandparents, who were not refugees, they were immigrants. And there's a difference. An immigrant comes to a country with their heart in their hands, but a refugee has left their heart behind. And that's something that someone told me as I was researching the book. Many of the people who have come from Somalia and left, come from refugee camps, they have said to me, is they didn't want to leave their country. They had to leave their country. And that was so different from my relatives. They were anxious to leave. <laughs> they, they always felt that they had left their families behind. My grandmother, her whole life, still called Ireland home. My Spanish grandmother always referred to my country. And those traditions they brought with them were very important. Their, their food, their faith, all sorts of little things that they would talk about and little sayings that they had. But it wasn't quite the same as what I was encountering when I met people who were refugees, because I sort of feel like when you come as an immigrant, you're almost anxious and determined to reinvent yourself. And I think a person who's a refugee almost finds that that's being thrust upon them. Sometimes explicitly. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. One of the things that was very poignant to me about the book was a scene where Tom is walking from class to class, and he sees a young Somali boy literally kind of slouched down against the wall, clearly overwhelmed, just overwhelmed by the crowd of kids making noise, moving from class to class, and that Tom begins to get that even switching classes is such a foreign and kind of overwhelming new idea that he begins to see through this child that I get a glimpse into how much was new. I was struck as I read the book how many aspects of Somali uh, high school student experience you touched on, PTSD, the kind of overwhelm, the challenges of poverty, and, you know, some of the kids not even being able to have soccer cleats to play soccer. And um, I was curious, were there parts of that experience that you had to leave out, or did you put as many? I mean, there were so many details that really showed me how much work you'd done in trying to understand from the inside. Did you include everything you could? Were there details that you didn't get to fit in? Oh, gosh, I, I don't know if I can answer that question. I'd have to go through notebooks. I tried to make sure that everything fit organically. I didn't want to turn this into a compendium of everything I had, I had learned. I didn't want it to be a textbook. I really wanted the story to flow naturally from, from the characters. So um, I can't think anything offhand that I necessarily left out. I mean, I think you, you find that balance so beautifully because I was aware reading it that on the one hand, the book is really, it's a, in some ways a primer for high school kids about what it's important to understand about Somali kids. You could think of it that way. You could imagine high school English teachers around the country recommending this book. On the other hand, it's an incredibly gripping story. I didn't want to stop reading it. I was I was very sad to, to end the book because I was totally in the lives of these kids. And I was curious for you as a writer, is that 
balance a challenging one because you were teaching us something. You were teaching us something very valuable, but you never sacrificed the story to do it. Tell me about how hard was that for you? I think that's a challenge for any writer to make sure that you're not interrupting the narrative and that it's character driven and that you try to show and not tell. Of the, the three books that I've written, I would say that that was the hardest in this book. That was very, very hard, particularly because I was relying on interviews I had done and I was relying on news accounts and books that I had read. So there were all these facts at the back of my head. And I wanted to also make sure that I got it right, not just got it right in terms of making sure my facts were lined up, but that I got it right in terms of the spirit of what I wanted to convey. I felt so strongly that the young people who shared with me had been so generous that I wanted to do them justice. So, yeah, I thought that was that was a real tension in the book of making sure that it was true to the characters, that the story flowed, and that it didn't read like some sort of a textbook. Have you gotten feedback from teenagers yet? I know the book was Not just launched as today. Not much <laughs> from teenagers yet because most of the readers that I relied on were, you know, folks like my editor and my agent. I do give my books to my kids. They're usually kid-tested before they've made it out onto the bookshelves. My kids are, my daughter particularly has some pretty sharp literary instincts, and both of my kids are very good at pointing out to me when they got the dialogue wrong and say, Mom, a kid would (laughs) never say that. So um, if I've gotten the dialogue wrong, you have to blame my own kids. I actually loved that part of the book. I thought that the dialogue between the teenagers felt so clever and witty and like giving each other a hard time all the time and really playful in a way that felt very real to me. I'm I'm glad. So your kids must have, you know, given it the thumbs up. (laughs) (laughs) My best best experience is when I had a finished manuscript and I handed it to my son, who I was was living with an 18-year-old boy at the time that I was narrating from an 18-year-old boy's point of view, and I could hear him in the other room laughing. And I thought, oh, phew, that's good. No higher praise. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to read a passage from your book, actually, myself, because this is what really touched me. You make me, as a reader, really you know, lo- love these characters, particularly Said and Samira, this brother and sister from Somalia. And there's a particular scene at the end, near the end of the book, I'm not going to give away the story, where someone has kind of mistreated Said, And Tom Bouchard is trying to understand why that is. And he's struggling with it with his dad. And he says, you know, why, why could he have done that? How could he have done that? And he says, he doesn't know Said. I told him. He doesn't know any of our guys and what playing on this team means to them. So it was easy, meaning it was easy to mistreat them. The dad nods. Things get a little more complicated when you know somebody's story, he said. Yeah, it's messy. People get mad when Somalis parked outside the mosque block their driveways. Folks get nervous when a bunch of black men gather to play soccer every evening on the field right near their houses. White supremacists show up and start to start a fight. It is a mess. But then when some Somali lady teaches your aunt how to make sambusas, or you teach this young boy his ABCs, or your friend Saeed teaches you how to kick a goal from midfield, I wish, I muttered. But you understand, Dad said, it's hard to fear someone or to be cruel to them when you know their story. And that touched me very much, because I feel like even for for someone like me who doesn't honestly know 
Somalis as a friend, doesn't doesn't play soccer with any Somalis, that in a way, vicariously, through writing this story, you kind of give me that tiny sense of knowing someone, even if it's fictitious. And I, I imagine that was your hope in writing it. Is that right? Yes, and I'm I'm so pleased you found that conversation with the father. And all I can say is that that was my experience of watching the boys that I had met interact with each other. They had let themselves get to know each other's stories and became friends and didn't fear each other and were just open to each other. They laughed together, they played together, they ate together, and it's really hard to hate and it's hard to mistrust when you know someone else's story. It was as as beautiful and as simple as that. And I saw that when I went to Lewiston and met these people. It's striking, though, when you say it's hard to fear someone. I mean, that's the heart of it, isn't it? We fear each other. We fear each other's difference. Maybe we're afraid of doing the wrong thing. I mean, one of the things that's so poignant in your book is the way that Tom actually really messes up. He does things that are incredibly culturally insensitive, never out of bad intention. But actually, he's very hurtful, precisely because he doesn't know. And I don't know if that's part of the fear. With these two guys that you talked to, what do you think helped them overcome the fear of each other? Their friendship got started when they were in middle school, actually. And to be perfectly honest with you, their friendship got started because they both love soccer. They love soccer, and they had a common goal. They wanted to win. And so they got to know each other as teammates and found all sorts of other common ground as a result. So for those two boys, uh, playing sports together was a way in. So I want to ask you one last thing, Maria, which is that here you are, the descendant of four immigrants. And did researching this book and learning about the Somali immigrant experience, did it teach you anything new about your grandparents that was valuable for you personally? Oh, I think what it did, it probably brought to life for me how hard it was for them to leave their families behind. My grandmother often said to me, and of course this was a time, you know, they came over on a boat. You know, you almost never spoke to anybody on the telephone. Now we're so connected. And she tells me the story of one time when she left thinking, I'm never going to see my mother again. And, um, When she first told me that story and I was a child, it didn't get to me the way it does now that I'm a mother. But also when I met these people, I realized just how much they left behind and how many of them think they will never go back. They'll never be able to go back. And so it's a tremendous loss, tremendous sense of loss that you carry with you forever, I'd imagine. And that must be very difficult. I want to thank you, Maria, for your your great sensitivity to that loss and the way that you captured it in a way that I think opened the hearts of anyone who will read your book. Thank you for being my guest. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I've been speaking to Maria Padian, author of the new book today, Out of Nowhere, about the experience of high school students in Maine from Somalia and from Lewiston becoming friends. I want to thank tonight Jen Hodson for mixing the sound and Maurice Lennon for the music. If you'd like to listen to the show in its entirety or email the link to a friend, please go to our website, www.safespaceradio.com. You can 
Sign up there to get a weekly announcement with a link to each week's show. You can also download us from iTunes and from Facebook. Coming up next is Local Solutions, but before we go to them, I want to just remind you that this is our last show at the Wednesday 7.30 p.m. slot. We are moving till Mondays at 1 o'clock, so tune in then to continue this series on the Somali community in Maine.